It's not like that. Sure it is. All right, I love that. Welcome. Uh, glad you are here. My name is Matt. Uh, glad that you are with us this morning as we continue our Art of Neighboring series. Uh, how many of you felt like, oh, I can relate to the, the avoider, right? How many of you could relate to the annoyer? Right, okay, yeah. If you don't know which one you are, I'm concerned. So, uh, Hey, as Dave, as Dave mentioned, we are calling this series Art of Neighboring. We believe that Jesus laid the groundwork uh, for radically affecting the world for the better, starting with the people closest in proximity to you. And uh, as Jesus announced uh, the good news of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven and the gospels, what he was announcing was that God's sphere, God's rule, God's dom- domain uh, was invading earth, God's space invading our space and his presence coming to heal and forgive and restore. That is the storyline that Jesus was announcing. And so this invasion of heaven on earth, if you will, has two axes, right? The first axis is our love of God and the other axis is love of neighbor. With either one of these axes missing, the kingdom experience is diminished. And so the blueprints for the kingdom's presence in our world is a relationship defined by love toward God and towards neighbor. And Dave talked to us about this uh, last week. Now, if uh, we're honest, this series is really about getting real with our very suburban tendency to be isolated from the people around us. And so this is a series where we are committing as a church to actually love literal neighbors because we think it will radically affect our world and change you. Now, you might be here and you're thinking, great, I have uh, an obligation to love my neighbor, but that's certainly more than the people right around me. I have neighbors at work and neighbors at school and whatever, and I would just encourage you today to say that certainly your neighbor is more than the people next or adjacent to you, but it is not less than those people. And so we gave you some homework last week, right? When we asked you to uh, to just know the names of the ho- of the people in the houses around you. Did anybody actually do their homework and like figure out some names? All right, like three of you. Oh no, all right, like a solid dozen. Sweet. You know, I, I told the first service they were they had a pretty weak showing, and I said I think second service is going to beat you, and you did. So congratulations. <laughs> You're better people than the nine o'clock people. <laughs> We already knew that, though, didn't we? All right, so, um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, and so, what, what did you find out? Did you find out something important? Did you find out something deep, even? I, I, I hope that you began to realize some more of the stories that are being lived in the houses right around you. Um, now, here's the thing. Neighboring is hard work. It is not easy stuff. That's why it is an art. We all have room to grow, whether we are a neighboring novice or a seasoned neighbor. All of us have room to grow because it's a dynamic that is relational. And so we're going to the most famous neighbor passage of all uh, this morning and all of Scripture, I think, uh, to go to neighbor school uh, this morning with Jesus. So if you have a Bible, turn it to Luke chapter 10, verse 25. This is a story also known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. So uh, in case you've heard 40 sermons on it or you think you know all that there is, I think we'll find fresh things today at neighbor school in this passage. And I'm excited to share what God's got. So it begins like this. On one occasion, 
an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is a pretty interesting uh, event already. We have a Bible scholar, uh, a PhD in uh, Old Testament, comes to Jesus and he says, I've got a question for you. Now, this is someone who is used to being right. They are someone who is uh, who has a job description of guarding the truth. Okay, and he comes to Jesus with a test. Now, we tend to read this word test as if it's negative. He's trying to trap Jesus. Uh, the word is not necessarily negative. It can also just mean prove. Right? He wants Jesus to kind of prove. That he's orthodox, right? Because Jesus is confounding the people. Jesus is hanging out with the the unacceptable crowd. He's eating with sinners and tax collectors. And he's not keeping kosher company. And so this Bible scholar wants to know, is this would-be, maybe Messiah orthodox? Does he believe the right things? And so naturally he's concerned and he comes with this question What must I do to inherit eternal life? We could spend three hours talking about what that question means, but he's really looking at the the, the question of what must I do? What must I do to be rescued in this life and the next? And so Jesus responds, right? Uh, Jesus turns the tables. Instead of testing Jesus, now the law expert is on his heels as Jesus tests back. What is written in the law? Jesus replied. How do you read it? So Jesus, by asking a question, refuses to be tested. He deepens the dialogue and says, actually, let me test you. Right? There was an interview years ago with Elie Weisel, a famous Jewish novelist and writer. uh, And an interviewer asked him, he said, now, I've noticed that you Jews often answer questions with a question. Why do you do that? Weisel's response, why not? And so Jesus, in effect, says, okay, I've got a test back for you, right? What about the Torah? The Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the instruction of Moses, it gets translated as law in your Bibles, but it's literally instruction. And so instead of reading it as rules, we all ought to be reading it as teaching. It's the teaching, the instruction of Moses. And so Jesus says, we understand as Jews that the Torah outlines, right, the answer to your question, right? How do you understand the core message of the Torah? And the Bible scholar responds, he answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus responds, you have answered correctly. Do that and you'll live. So the expert passes the initial test, right? He quotes from Deuteronomy 6, the Shema that Dave talked about last week, and from Leviticus 19. Uh, This was undebatable. There was no real question in the day as to whether or not the Shema was the heart of the Torah. Of course it was the heart of the Torah, and loving your neighbor was the heart of the ethical demands of the entire Old Testament. And so the first test, if you will, is love God so much that he dominates all your thought and love and uh, love him so much that you are content in any circumstances because if you have him, you have what you want most deeply, right? That's test one. No big deal. 
All right. Test two, love your neighbor as yourself. What does that mean? Think about it. It means meet the needs of your neighbor with all the force and joy and speed and power with which you meet your own. Be as happy for them when their needs are met that you would be uh, for your own because you put your happiness right alongside their own. So, is that all? That's it. That's all that's being demanded of the entire Torah. No big deal. We all got that, right? Right? Do you feel the weight of it? Do you feel the force of it? See, I think this is totally brilliant on Jesus' part. He says, great answer. Go ahead and live that out perfectly. Right? Like, he's being cheeky with him. You can, in other words, you can say the right thing. Right? But that's not what's demanded of you. Jesus is saying, what, what's demanded of you is to live the right thing. He's not saying, go answer the right thing and... God will say, great, check, you're good. He says, live the right thing. And by the way, how's that working for you? Right? This is what Jesus is inferring. And so the Bible expert uh, answers, uh, the Bible expert's answer to Jesus is revealing of the main premise of his life. You see, this Bible expert is living his life on this premise that if I am correct, And if I am virtuous enough, God will accept me. Jesus says, yeah, okay, you should love God and love people. That's how you should live. But if you think that's how you will inherit eternal life, you're kidding yourself. See, this puts the Bible scholar on the defensive. He he knows that it's an impossible standard, that it will totally destroy his life premise, his foundation for his value, if he puts his full weight on it. And so he tries to limit the scope of what's being demanded of his love. Look at what Luke records. Verse 29, he wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Luke tells us the man's motivation, that it's self-justification. Now, we need to get this. The Bible reveals to us that the default setting of the human heart is set on self-justification. That's our default. We are born this way, right? I mean, I think even this morning, it was funny, like, oh, my sister kicked me. I'm like, yeah, okay. What were you doing? Pushing her off the trampoline. Okay. Um, do you not see the problem, right? Because the default setting in the human heart is self-justification, right? I don't deserve to be kicked. I can do, right? So, yeah, I could go on and on. We all have our examples, And so this guy knows deep down that he is not meeting the demands of the law that he has made into his own foundation for life. He knows this, and so he tries to limit the demands of the law, right? So he can feel better about his performance. Who can love anyone? That's just crazy. So he asks the question, who is my neighbor? This is a self-justification question. In other words, he's saying, what's the least amount of neighboring I have to do? Right? That's what he's saying. What gets me a passing grade? What's the minimum standard that I have to adhere to? Do you hear the question? You know the question because you've lived the question, right? We've all thought this at some point. What's like, what's the minimum I have to do? But any time we're asking the question, what's the least amount I have to do to make God happy with me, we are asking the wrong question. 
right? Because when we ask the what's the least I have to do question, we are operating with a spiritual paradigm of obligation. And this is a, a, a spiritual paradigm where I live my life with ought to's and have to's and should do's. It's a list of to-do items that form the basis of our security and value and worth. But Jesus will have none of it. And so he tells a story. Because stories invite us to become participants. Stories take us from abstract safety to concrete action. So he tells the story. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road when he saw the man, and he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, or two days' worth of wages, And gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, how's that for a response to self-justification? Now, Jesus flips the question. He flips the question from, who is my neighbor? A question of obligation to who was a neighbor, which is a question of opportunity. Jesus shifts the focus to the limitation-seeking, self-justifying, who is my neighbor, to the limitation-rejecting, self-forgetful, who was a neighbor. Do you see this? He shifts the paradigm from obligation to opportunity. And this is the clue to understanding neighbor school with Jesus. And he says, look, gospel neighboring is to meet the concrete needs, the human needs of all the people around you, whether they believe like you or not, with such costliness and such sacrifice that the people around you will need to hear the gospel just to make sense out of your life. That's what he's saying. Live in such a way that that life actually demands some explanation because otherwise it's inexplicable. The expert's perspective is flipped upside down. Jesus takes him to neighbor school. Here are some things that we learn in this passage. Uh, The first thing that we learn in this passage, this neighboring school, is that Jesus' version of neighboring refuses limits. It refuses to limit the who, the when, and the how much. Let's look at the, the who. 
First of all, Jesus-style neighboring refuses to limit the who. It's fairly natural for every one of us to do stuff for people just like us. We want to help people who are like ourselves because we can relate and identify easily. But inconveniencing ourselves for someone who is not socially advantageous to help, inconveniencing ourselves for someone who is actually difficult to find common ground with, why would we do that? Here's what's interesting about the story Jesus tells. He includes two types of characters. There are Jewish characters and there's a Samaritan character. And to our ears, we kind of gloss over that like, okay. But in the ears of Jesus' hearers, this is utterly shocking. See, there's a bitter, bitter hatred between these two racial groups, between Samaritan and Jew. It's a blood feud that is utterly shocking for these two characters to be in the same story and not kill each other, okay? See, Jesus is saying, be very careful in your neighboring that you do not put a limit on who you choose to neighbor. I mean, I'm trying to think of a modern-day equivalent. It would be like, I don't know, an American traveled to the Middle East, uh, was mugged by some street gang, and an ISIS fighter came and took him to the Red Cross shelter. How do you feel right now? Like, whoa, what? No, that's not supposed to be a thing. That's what this story is doing. There are no qualifiers for who we are to neighbor. Belief Behavior do not fit in as qualifiers. Jesus says, don't think for a second that you can put a limit on the who. Secondly, Jesus' paradigm of neighboring refuses to limit the when. Uh, now I, I, I share this story somewhat carefully because it was a process, um, but mostly of me listening. Um, a few weeks ago, one of the people that God has put into our lives, uh, someone he's brought before our family to neighbor in a process of some years, um, has this relationship with my wife where she occasionally calls for like advice, right? The, the, my wife has served her in some ways that like has given her moral authority because moral authority only goes to people who sacrificially love. And she's been loved by my wife in a way that now she goes to my wife and says, what do I do? And she came to my wife and was like, hey, I have this opportunity to go on this trip and it's with these people and they were dodgy and we didn't think it was going to work out very well. And my wife said, well, you're asking my opinion. I think it would be wise to stay home and keep your kids in school and I think you can keep you know the shifts at work that you've worked so hard to get. And sure enough, she goes on the trip, right? And, uh, and, uh, and then we get this text, like, late at night. It's like, things aren't going well. We don't have any money, and we don't have any place to stay, and this is how much the hotel costs. Any chance you can help us? Like, and I'm like, ah, we're watching a show. Like, can we, can we, can we not? Like, right? <laughs> Bible scholar. Who's my neighbor, right? My wife is over there, the Samaritans, like, Person on the side of the road, literally on the side of the road, Bowen. Like, let's get our game on, right? And so we have this talk. I, I, she has this explanation that I listen to and pray through, right? And I'm like, can we just answer tomorrow so that way it doesn't, you know, that keeps us on, like, you know, like, we're not doing whatever you ask, but, like, 
sure, I know that we're going to give them what they need and all this kind of, it wasn't like we had budgeted for it or anything, so it wasn't convenient, it wasn't, nothing about it worked great, except for the fact that I got to hit play about five minutes later on Netflix, and then we were able to PayPal them and help them out. Anyway, long story short, did we feel that they deserved our help? No, you called for our advice, we said, don't do that. I mean, why else would you call for our advice? We give awesome advice, right? <laughs> so... I kind of get paid to give advice, right? Like, anyway, so we, uh, we, we, we didn't feel like she deserved it. It wasn't, it wasn't convenient. It wasn't in our budget. And yet, right, it was the right move. It was the right thing to do. And it was, it was totally within our reach. And it was something that we were capable of that then continues to build a relationship that says, we love you, you're valuable. And here's the thing. I'm not saying that you enable people to make terrible choices. And I'm not saying you give up boundaries. I'm saying Jesus calls us to use discernment. But the kind of discernment Jesus calls us to use is not a discernment that asks, do you deserve my love? That's not the question. It's a discernment that asks, what is the most loving thing in this moment? Right? And our discernment in that moment, knowing she deserved love no matter what, was in this moment, this is right. Okay? And so in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Bible expert knows right, that because of the bitter hatred between the races, that a Samaritan would have every reason to leave a Jew on the side of the road and think, serves them right. right? They're the oppressor. He should die. But Jesus puts these two characters together to say, don't you dare put a limit on when you neighbor. But most of us, if I'm, if I'm, I, I think most of us are not asking the question, you know, does my neighbor, are they worthy of my affection and care, right? Most of us are not resisting Jesus' neighbor ethic because we think people are unworthy. Some of us might be there today. It's okay. Jesus will work on you as he does on me. But we, we mostly avoid Jesus' neighbor ethic because we simply believe we have no time. I think. I think that, that we are in a habit of saying, you know, my time is so important that I can't really be available. And, and I would say to you this morning, humbly with grace, that busyness is a cancer in the American church. I I think it absolutely wrecks our witness uh, because it keeps us in an endless cycle of activity and and builds a sense of self-importance, but but, uh, completely insulates us from the inconvenience that actually makes an impact on our world. So when people ask you, how are you? There's a high chance that this week you have responded, good busy. It's a season, right? I know you have, right? Uh, and, and that when we say that, when we say I'm busy, it serves as a warning. It's this little shot off the bow that says I'm important and I'm unavailable, uh, right? I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm busy. I'm, I'm important, but I'm not accessible to you. I'd love to be later, right? And so when I'm too busy and people ask, how are you? And I find myself saying, good, busy, here's what I try to do most of the time. I try to say, hey, I'm offering this as a confession, I'm not offering this as a boast. I need to confess to you that I've said yes to more than I said, should have said yes to. And um, I've thought that I was capable of more than I'm actually capable of. So I'm offering that as a confession. And people are like, why are you, what? I'm uncomfortable. Why are you talking to me about this? Right? It's because I don't want to justify our busyness anymore. It's not okay. And can we just quit saying it's a season? 
Like, it's a three-year season. That's not a, that's not a season. It's a systemic habit. Okay? That's not a season. So don't say it anymore as an excuse for your busyness. Yes, there are seasons that are higher intensity than others, but let's not offer it as an excuse for our habitual busyness. Okay, so we, we have to reject putting limits on when we neighbor. We, we have to start by getting unbusy. And there's simply no way to get unbusy without disappointing someone. So embrace it. It will make you significantly more available to be someone of significance. So we reject limiting our neighboring by making it about when I think you deserve it and when I think I can do it. The third thing we see Jesus saying here is that neighboring refuses to put limits on the how much. Now this is a road from Jerusalem to Jericho that is fraught with problems. The road has a reputation. Jesus chooses it intentionally. It was known as the pass of blood, right? It's like, don't go through that hood. That is not a good place to go. It's a treacherous road full of robbers, bandits, and you would likely get murdered there as anywhere else. And so uh, the two characters that Jesus puts before the Samaritan, the priest and the Levite, they pass on the other side. Now, for years until this week, I've read this passage, reading it as a modern Westerner who thinks, well, of course, these guys would move to the other side because they're busy and they have stuff to do where they're going. Wrong. I don't think they move away from this man because they're busy. I think they move away from this man because they're afraid. Now, think of this. Think with me about how this works. They know that he's not all dead, but mostly dead, right? They know that he's half dead, naked, beaten. He's fresh meat on the road. That means he was mugged not that long ago. And when he was mugged not that long ago, the guys that mugged him are not that far away. Get it? Right. So why are they avoiding him? Don't go where that guy went, right? I don't want that to happen to me. And so they are moving as far away as possible because they know that to go near is to risk their own lives. And so when the Samaritan stops to help this dying naked man, there's a distinct risk he's taking. We think sometimes, you know, oh, if I stop and jump this guy's car, if I stop and listen, if I help with this project, I'm going to miss out on what? Me time? Maybe I'm late, which is like a sin uh, in the North northern hemisphere of the world but not in the southern hemisphere we know this as a staff because we're a bit multicultural and so we've learned that <laughs> gabby's upstairs so's reuben so i can make that joke all right so <clears throat> so when this guy helps him he knows he's not just risking being late he's risking his life but look what the man does he stops, he goes into harm's way, he bandages his wounds, uh, he pours oil on them and wine. So, in other words, he, he risks his life, he pays his medical bills, then he saddles him up on his donkey, he pays his travel expenses, then he brings him to an inn, right? And he pays his lodging expenses, he offers another two days' wages and offers to pay any overages. In other words, neighboring means this. Neighboring means, uh, and it meant for the Samaritan that he was ready to pay the price of meeting the man's need in the moment, and it meant that he was going to invest in his restoration in the future. Do you see that? 
Neighboring means that we meet the need in the moment. And it means we invest in the, the person's restoration in the future. And so when we stop and we listen, we're not just saying, I'm going to listen so you can stop talking and I can go on to my own thing. We stop and we listen to our neighbors so we can build a relationship and we can pray into their wholeness as a person forever. And we think, sure, I can help when I have time or when I have money or when I have margin enough for myself. And I think we're missing something when we try to put limits on how much we offer in neighboring. See, Jesus says, neighboring my way embraces radical cost. There was an old uh, preacher, Jonathan Edwards, you're probably familiar with his Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God sermon. He was actually somebody who was deeply affected by the love of God. Uh, and this is what he says to, to people who are processing giving to the poor. He's dealing with the person who puts off giving to another because they're saying that they can't afford to. And this is what he says. He says, we may, by the rules of the gospel, be obliged to give to others when we cannot do it without suffering ourselves. Else, how is it that the rule of bearing one another's burdens is fulfilled? If we never are obliged to relieve others' burdens, except when we can do it without burdening ourselves, how do you bear your neighbor's burdens when you only do it when you bear no burden at all? Edwards is saying, look, when people say, I can't afford to give, I don't have margin, I don't have time, whatever, what he's saying is you can't afford to do it without it impinging on your living standards, without it breaking in to your control of reality. And Jesus says, once you get following me has a cost, you're on the right road. And so, do you see what Jesus is doing in this parable? He's saying in neighbor school, my standards of neighboring are very high. Right? He says, following me means that you will be called to serve those you are tempted to disdain. It means that you will be called to value every person on the planet, no matter their age, their gender, their race, their worldview, their behavior standards, and in a way that you want to be valued. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, I am capable of infinitely stretching who you think you can love, when you think you can love them, and how much you can absorb in order to love them. And my wife, and that recent experience, was the conduit in which Jesus expanded my ability to love. And so um, I managed to keep alive through that, by the way. I think you will be able to do the same. There's this thing, though, that no one really automatically neighbors like this. We don't just pull up our bootstraps and say, I am determined to love everyone today without limits. I mean, some of you may, but... My guess is the default self-justification setting of the heart is inclined to not go there unless you have power to do it. Now, here's the second thing that Jesus teaches us in neighbor school, and that's this, that neighboring has to be motivated from within. And so here at neighbor school, he teaches us a motivation for neighboring that enables us to actually neighbor like he calls us to. How do we do it? There's two ways. You can try one of, you can try both of them. One will work, one will not. Um, the first way, that I believe is insufficient, is just through straight-up morality. Jesus gives two moral, uh, morally obligated examples, the priest and the Levite. Their job description was to help the guy on the side of the road. They knew it to be right. Uh, they knew they were called to represent God, to distribute food for the poor, the, to help the person in distress. They knew the law. They knew the obligation. They had even signed up for it. And they did nothing. It's like this, like an EMT that just drives past a car accident with no other responders there. It's like, what? Where are you going? 
All right? And so that's what's happening here. These guys are just like the Bible expert. They know their moral obligation. They have a should do, right, in their brains. But Jesus, master storyteller that he is, has these two people with their should do's move as far away as this, from this guy as possible. They avoid being a neighbor. Why? Because he wants to show us that duty and obligation and moral should-dos will not move you to neighbor well, let alone neighbor at a radical cost. And so this moralistic motivation of obligation is totally insufficient. It cannot take you very far. And so if this series is just about external obligation from your pastors, then you might as well like time out and join us for the summer series in the Psalms. This is not what we're after. If you are here today feeling guilty for your lack of neighboring, I want to say to you, stop it. It will not work. Just get over your guilt. It's not going to help you. So how does Jesus tell the story? It's profound, actually. I read another pastor this week who observed this. He said, what if Jesus, what if Jesus had put this man, the Israelite, on the donkey and the Samaritan on the road? What if Jesus had told it that way? A man just like you was traveling and found a half-dead Samaritan. And so he bandaged him. He risked his life. He gave to him. He met his needs with energy and sacrifice for him. So go do likewise. Where would the power in that story be? It would just be one more should do. It would be one more go do that would utterly backfire. Because the Israelite can simply say, we would never do that. It would be a betrayal of my people, right? I wouldn't rescue that blasphemer, that oppressor. No, instead, what does Jesus do? He puts the man he's speaking to on the road. The text doesn't say, but we can presume that the man left for dead is an Israelite. And he is on the road, and the Samaritan is in the position to help. Remember the question? It goes from who is my neighbor to who was a neighbor? Who was a neighbor to the person in need? See, the Bible teacher cannot even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He just answers, oh, the man who had mercy, right? Why is that so important? Because Jesus is saying this, unless you grasp this, you won't be able to go do likewise. If you think that your life premise of performance and moral obligation is enough to give you security, you're off. Unless you see that the premise of your life has to be receiving mercy and free grace, you'll never neighbor well. So the gospel says that Jesus Christ came into the world. He came into our road And he owes us nothing but rejection because he's the creator and we owe him everything, but we've been trying to be our masters forever. But when he came to our place in the road, he has compassion on us. That word for pity in the NIV, it's compassion. And it's used more of Jesus' emotional life than any other word. Jesus Christ meets us on the road and has compassion. And when he sees us, He knew that to stop wouldn't just risk his life. He knew that to come to us would cost his life. And he does it, and he does it joyfully. So Jesus, to get down, to rescue humanity, half dead and unclothed, gives up his life to clothe us, restore us, to put us in his place. And he pays the cost of that. He pays it at his life. 
So if you see Jesus as your good Samaritan, as the one who rescues you, who, who in his death restores your relationship with God, that ends the enmity, as the Bible says, if you see Jesus as your good Samaritan, if you see him as your radical neighbor, if you see him as having done that for you, it changes forever the way that you are able to neighbor. You can begin to neighbor, not out of obligation and performance, but from free grace. And it changes your motivation. You see, this parable of the Good Samaritan is showing us that Jesus Christ calls us to a love that cannot just be demanded or required. He requires us to love in a way that you cannot just require. What what, what am I saying? I'm saying this, that in other words, Jesus Christ says radical gospel neighboring requires a love that cannot be a response to a mere requirement. It has to be a response from free grace and relationship. Only when you see your true neighbor in Jesus and what he's done for you will you be able to be a true neighbor to others. So let me end with just a few practical ways that we can take this from here out there. Okay? Just three really short, simple things. First, um, once you grasp the depth of the free grace of God and what it took him to become a neighbor to you, you are free to make three basic changes. First, we change what we value. We change our value. It requires us to value neighbors. It involves seeing them and having compassion, taking pity. It means that when you see someone, you're moved from the inside. It's this place where you begin to ask the questions, what happens if I don't? What happens if I don't neighbor? What happens if I don't engage and serve? And so to see and be moved. This happened to us some years ago when we used to rent from a house owned by the church and like it was surrounded by other churchy folks. And so we would joke about this neighborhood as we would call it the cul-de-sac. And uh, we, we like, I don't know if anybody ever really appreciated that, but it was our joke and we liked it as a couple. So that's kind of our MO. We, we think we're funny and we don't care what you think. So um, we're happy. We're the only ones who have to be married to each other. So um, we, uh, we, we kind of just did our thing, yearning for, like, quote, normal neighbors for a long time. And then we noticed Pat one day. Like, we, we noticed her struggling. She was an old elderly lady who had asthma and, and arthritis. And she was trying to get the uh, garbage cans up the hill to the top of her driveway. And we just noticed the struggle. And I think she was, like, ready to give up and sit down. And, and all of a sudden, like, we saw her. And we're moved. And we're like, that shouldn't be. We're right here. Right? And so uh, it began this relationship where my wife began trucking her around to go get groceries and get prescriptions refilled and go to doc- doctor's appointments. And it began this great relationship with Pat. And she loved on our kids and we got to love on her. But it starts with seeing and being moved. And, and, and the second change The second change is that we have to change our time. It's not just that we change our value, but once you do that, you can change your time. See, neighboring cannot be done in a rush. The thing about taking Pat to the store and filling prescriptions and sitting with her in her last days as she was dying meant that other things had to leave the calendar. That to neighbor meant to eliminate something from the schedule. And so when you see people and when you value them, the next step in being intentional is to make time for them. And so the question we have to ask is not only what would happen if I don't, but what must I eliminate in order to? 
What do I need to eliminate today? This is a question for you. Is there anything I need to eliminate today? To just be a neighbor, not to be like that guy busting into Jason Bateman's car. Right? Sometimes you're called to neighbor at a distance. When people want space, give them space for crying out loud. But, right? but to make space. What will I eliminate? Here's the challenge for you this week. We spend one hour, just one hour, in your front yard this week. Not, not like between 5 a.m. and 6 a.m. when nobody's out there. Right? <laughs> this, is, this is an obligation paradigm. This is opportunity paradigm. When it is reasonable to expect other people out there, will you just be available? One hour this week. God even gave us sunshine this weekend for our series. So, okay, we talked to him about it and we said, come on, son, please. And he's like, all right, I'll hook you up. One hour. Third and final, third and final challenge. So, uh, uh, the, the, the third change is this. We need to change our prayers. So many prayers in the church are so frequently a wish list, a shopping list for God. God, would you just, uh, and it's always the just, right? I, I call this the just of the justifieds, right? If you've been justified, you throw a just before your request. God, we just ask that you would be glorified today. Stop it. Okay. Um, so many prayers are, yeah, would you just help me on my test? Would you uh, help me do a good job at work today? Help me to not have traffic. I'm like, that, those are low-grade prayers. Let's go for the deep cuts, okay? Um, neighboring has its roots in prayer. It, it's a learning to ask the question of God, Lord, what is your heart for this home? What is your heart for this space and this neighborhood? What are you doing that I can join you in? And so here's one simple thing you can do this week. As it's springtime and you can be out, and, uh, would, would you consider going on a prayer walk? This is a simple exercise of walking and praying at the same time. I believe you can do it. Keep your eyes open, right? I think uh, that helps unless you have a partner. Steve Hanamura is able to do this for us. But, you know, I, I, I asked him if I could say that at the beginning of the sermon. He's like, yeah. All right. So, um, but find, you know, find a time to just walk with your eyes open and just simply pray for your neighborhood and pray through your neighborhood. Just simple. Start simple. Start small. Lord, I pray for your peace on this home. Lord, I pray for the kids in this home. Uh, I pray for your warmth on that home. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, you would protect the marriage of this home. God, I pray for a hunger for you to be stirred in this home, in this neighborhood. Lord, open my eyes to see with your compassion what you want me to see here. Start small. Go for a walk. One hour in your front yard, one walk this week. See what happens. See what God does. And let me ask you this question. What if we don't do it? What do we lose? So much. But what if we do it? What if we actually do that? What do you lose? Nothing. What do you gain? So many opportunities. Friends, it's not obligation. It's opportunity. That's what Jesus wants us to learn in neighbor school. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you that it's your love that motivates us. It is not our guilt. We thank you that we can neighbor from a place of being truly loved to be able to look to the needs of others because you have looked to our own needs so radically, so permanently, and so fully. We pray in response to the gospel that we would be your people sent out to neighbor well. We pray, Lord, uh, your prayer uh, that your kingdom would come your will would be done 
in the homes next to us, in front of us, behind us, in the relationships that we have with the people in proximity to us on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.